that if you were going anywhere, you'd be gone by now, so it can't be that, right? So why don't we open our Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2. We are studying through the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 20 verses this morning. Some of you may recognize this story. A little tongue-in-cheek comment there. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Let's pray together. Lord, it's uh, part of our prayer this morning, Lord, that you would uh, cause us to think differently and freshly about these familiar words. Uh, I'm sure that there's no one in here, Lord, that is unfamiliar with this story, and, and perhaps, Lord, we're too familiar with it, but familiarity doesn't need to be something, Lord, to be feared, but to be embraced in the sense that we can learn new and fresh things from it. And so we pray that, Lord. And Lord, we've come here with needs, all of us, each of us, in a different way, in a different category, Lord. Regardless the text that we study from week to week as we work our way through the Bible, I know, Lord, that you can speak to each and every heart from any place in the Word, and you can reveal Jesus. He can be high and lifted up and be seen as Lord in His glory and His majesty. And so, Lord, for all of us this morning and this day, 
with whatever hurt or pain or need or desire that we have, Lord, may it be realized in you. After all is said and done, Lord, may you remain in our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. A manger, of course, is the feeding trough for barn animals. Lined with fresh straw, it served as the crib into which the baby Jesus was laid on the night of His birth in Bethlehem. Putting Jesus in a feeding trough may seem odd to us, but those humble circumstances were designed by God to communicate precious truths about the mission of Jesus on earth. The trough was also designed as a metaphor. It served metaphorically as at least two other items. It was a throne and it was a temple. It served as a throne because there lying in it was the son promised to King David who would rule over God's kingdom forever. And it served as a temple because there lying in it was the Savior promised to mankind who would substitute himself for the sin of the world. The trough was the one place perfectly suited for the events of that first Christmas. As a throne, it held the Lord. As a temple, it held the Lamb. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, the trough served as a throne for the Lord who is your shepherd. And number two, the trough served as a temple for the Lamb who is your Savior. Let's take a look first in verses 1 through 7 and see the trough served as a throne for the Lord who is your shepherd. Now, there's a background story here that we must keep in mind. It's from the Old Testament. Luke mentioned that Joseph and Mary traveled to what he called the city of David, and he identified it as Bethlehem, and he said that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David. David was the young shepherd boy whom God saw as the man after his own heart and anointed king over Israel. David's years of shepherding prepared him to be the kind of king God wanted over his people, more like a shepherd caring for them. David is sometimes called the shepherd king of Israel. After David became king, he conquered Jerusalem and brought the Ark of the Covenant back to the tabernacle. It was a glorious time of triumph for Israel. One day, as King David looked out the windows of his magnificent cedar palace, he saw the tabernacle. He was struck with the fact that while he lived in a great palace made of cedar, God's glory still dwelt in the old tent that Moses had carried through the wilderness. He had an idea for a building project. He wanted to build a house for God. It sounded good until God spoke to David about it through Nathan the prophet. I'm going to read to you portions of God's message to King David. They're from 2 Samuel chapter 7, but just listen as I read. Thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. 
your throne shall be established forever. King David wanted to build God a physical house. God was going to instead build King David a spiritual house. God promised King David that his descendant would one day be the true shepherd king over Israel. He would be the Lord who would rule forever and ever. The child born to Joseph and Mary was the promised son of David, the shepherd king who was and is the Lord and who would rule forever. Thus, his trough was really his throne. And it was a good reminder that his rule would be like that of a shepherd who would care for the sheep of God. Now behold the shepherd king on his first throne in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. The Romans took a census every 14 years and would also command other special censuses whenever they thought it was necessary. A census required you to register in the town of your birth. So off Joseph and Mary trudged. Now, they didn't have the kinds of, you know, uh, technology that we have today. You really couldn't send away for your birth certificate via email and things like that. And so you had to return to the city of your birth. And this wasn't too difficult for most people because most people never left the city of their birth. Many of you can identify with that here in the valley. You know, there is life on the other side of Bakersfield. <laughs> it's not the kind of life that you think it is, but uh, there is life down there. Caesar Augustus was a title bestowed upon a man named Octavian. He was the Caesar Augustus. He was the first Caesar to be called Augustus. The word means holy or to be revered. We still use this sometimes in the Old English sense. Someone is August or August. Well, actually, we don't use it, but that's what it means. We think of it as a month, which was named after Caesar Augustus. Up to that time, it was a title reserved for the Roman gods. It was the beginning of considering the Caesars godlike and swearing oaths to them. At about the same time Luke was writing his gospel, the Greek cities of Asia Minor adopted Caesar's birthday, September 23rd, as the first day of their new year, and they began to call him Savior. In fact, one inscription that has been unearthed by archaeologists calls him Savior of the whole world. Luke was a careful historian. He dated the exact census by mentioning Quirinius. By the way, another great Bible name for those of you who are looking for names. It's a little bit Roman, but we don't know anything good or bad about this guy. He's just a Roman official, Quirinius. Be unique anyway. Now, this history tells a deeper story. Octavian may have thought himself a god to be revered. The people may have hailed him a savior for the world, but God was using Octavian to accomplish his eternal purposes. Quirinius may have been ordering a census, but God was overseeing it in order to get Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Make no doubt about it, whatever is happening in the world through even the most powerful governments is happening by God's oversight and with his 
ultimate purposes in mind. And so in verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, as you're reading through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when they talk about the city of David, oftentimes it refers to Jerusalem. And that's why here Luke is careful to say the city of David, that is Bethlehem. Here he means the city of David's birth. Joseph had to get to his birth city, but so did Jesus. The Old Testament prophet, a guy named Micah, had predicted in the 8th century before Christ that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. I'll read it to you from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, one of the most well-known prophecies in all the Word of God. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephaphrath, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting." Mary was due to deliver. Any day the baby could come. In fact, if you follow the timing, uh, their journey from where they lived back to Bethlehem was about a three-day journey. And so they left, and three days later when they got to Bethlehem, she delivered. Now, I don't know if saints in heaven can see what's happening on the earth or not. The Bible's kind of silent about that, and so what I'm going to say next is strictly my conjecture for having a little fun. But I wonder if Micah was nervous. He says, Lord, uh, you know, eight centuries ago, you had me write that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. This is the girl, right? Isn't that what Gabriel said? She's pregnant, and she's going to have the Messiah. You see her down there in Nazareth? Lord, I need to talk to the Lord right now. I mean, we're within days of this delivery, and she's got to get from where she is to Bethlehem to have this baby. I'd be nervous if I was Micah. Not to worry. God was overseeing it all, getting the circumstances of the birth just right and ready. Now, think of it, though. Eight centuries earlier, he had spoken to this man giving this prophecy, and then he waits until three days before the baby is to be born, and then he gets married exactly where she needs to be at exactly the right moment. God's timing is a miracle of precision. We always think it's late because we want him to do certain and specific things for us, good things in many cases, but God's timing is a perfect thing. And he has it all well in hand from before the time the earth was ever created. He had all of these things on his palm pilot. <laughs> Luke 2, verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, each of us has some mental picture of this scene, probably from the figurines at the bottom of your Christmas tree each year as you were growing up, or some other such seasonal representation. I, I still can picture in my mind clearly my uh, family manger scene when I was a little boy growing up. And uh, I thought to myself, why didn't Mary and Joseph just take the train? 
because there was always a Lionel train set set up around the manger. <laughs> and so why, why ride the donkey when you can take the train? That was my favorite part of Christmas was working the transformer on the train. How many had trains? Oh, man, the rest of you are losers. I mean, we had these really cool Lionel trains. You know, you'd put this pellet in the one engine, and it would smoke, and it would woo-woo, and, and you know, and stuff, and it was a really cool thing. My eldest brother confiscated it, and it's in a vault somewhere now. But anyway, it's a whole other family story. But uh, so that's what I thought, and then we had this kind of little manger set up like most people do, and I thought angels were little small cherub kind of creatures with harps, you know, because there was always this one angel uh, that clipped onto the barn and, and was looking over the birth. There are at least three possibilities, each with variations of what is meant by the word in when Luke said there was no room for them in the inn. The inn can refer to an inn in the traditional sense of an overnight place of lodging. If so, there was no room available for them, and they spent the night in one of at least three different places, in a stable adjacent to the inn, or in an open courtyard outside the inn with the animals, or if the inn was built in near a hillside, there would have been a cave hollowed out into the hillside where the animals were sheltered. And so any one of those is possible. Interesting, the word inn can also refer to rooms within a house. It's the same word, for instance, that describes the upper room where the Last Supper took place. In the ancient world, as well as in primitive modern cultures, mangers are found within houses themselves. Animals are regularly kept inside homes at night. Family sleeping quarters were on the second floor in an upper room. By being inside, the animals were protected from the elements and theft. In addition, their presence provided body heat for cool nights, access to milk for the daily meal, and, I have to say it, dung as a critical fuel source. If this is what was meant, Mary and Joseph did not find space in the living quarters of their ancestral family home. Instead, they stayed downstairs in the domestic stable, still within the ancestral home where a manger or two was located. Makes sense to me. Joseph, remember, he's going back to where he was born. And it's not, without the, it's not outside the realm of possibility that he had family there that had an ancestral home. And you come home, and there may have been other relatives, and it could have been crowded. Now, I don't know how you got upstairs in these homes, maybe upstairs or maybe up a ladder. I don't know. But Mary is ready to pop at any minute. She probably don't, doesn't want to walk upstairs. You ever get really miserable gals just right there at the end, you know? I, I wish I could say that I feel for you, but <laughs> I have had a kidney stone, if that's any help. But anyway... <laughs> Uh, and so it could be that they got there and Mary is really pregnant and they said, look, we don't want to stay upstairs. Uh, it's just too uncomfortable going upstairs, so let's just clear out an area down here. We'll just hang out down here. Uh, and and, and that's that may have been what happened. Now, I don't want to ruin any Christmas memories or previous sermons that you've heard about there being no room for them in the inn. But we really can't be sure of the exact surroundings. We can be sure of the manger, the feeding trough, 
It was really a throne because there lying in it was the Lord who would shepherd his people as their king forever. Jesus would eventually refer to himself as the good shepherd. The apostle Peter called him the chief shepherd. It's a metaphor of the shepherd king. There's a lot we could say about the shepherd king. Because he's a shepherd king, the Lord always leads you rather than driving you. Uh, the, the shepherd um, imagery is so beautiful in this regard. Jesus, and as a shepherd, leading you into good pastures, leading you by the still waters, not behind you, whipping you, driving you, shooting guns off behind you, better get to the water, you know, and stuff. I mean, it's a whole different imagery than we sometimes have. And Christian leaders and churches sometimes forget this, and we end up driving people in different directions for their own good when we should just simply lead them spiritually. Because Jesus is the shepherd king, he provides for your every need. Sheep are notoriously ignorant animals, and they need to be provided for uh, in all of their needs, and, and Jesus is our shepherd. Uh, if you've never read it, it's worth reading Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. It is a Christian classic. It's, in my mind, it's up there with Pilgrim's Progress, fantastic book who, uh, by Keller who worked as a shepherd for some years and goes through the 23rd Psalm and brings that imagery alive for you. Because Jesus is your shepherd king, Psalm 23 is filling your heart with comfort. Now, as we press on, we see that the Lord who is your shepherd is also the Lamb. Verses 8 through 20, the manger served as a temple for the Lamb who is your Savior. Now there were, verse 8, in the same country, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. There's something you need to know about these particular shepherds and their flocks. Bethlehem was about five miles from Jerusalem. It is believed by many scholars that these flocks were the lambs used for sacrifice in the temple at Jerusalem. There is even a verse also in Michael that speaks of, and I quote, the tower of the flock. It's a place in the vicinity of the birth of the Lord. In ancient times, this was a military tower to view into the valley near Bethlehem. Near the time of Jesus' birth, it had become the tower of the flock, where the priests came to examine the newborn lambs designated for sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. And by the way, this is information that would lend credibility to Jesus having been born on the traditional December 25th date. Now, even I myself over the years have said that Jesus probably wasn't born on December 25th uh, because shepherds aren't out in the winter, you know, f with their flocks. And this is a popular teaching uh, in the Christian church. However, once you get a little bit deeper into it and you start understanding some of the Jewish traditions that we are ignorant of as Western Christians, uh, you find out that there was this particular flock of sheep and these very particular shepherds who did pasture their sheep outside of Jerusalem, outside of Bethlehem, all year round because they were designated for temple sacrifice. And, and so it may be that Jesus was born on the traditional date. Jesus was born where the sacrificial lambs were born. He would be slain where the sacrificial lambs were sacrificed. 
It helps you if you remember one of his great titles, which would be given to him by his cousin, John the Baptist. John looked at him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so verse 9 says, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Now the Christmas carols start coming in bunches away in a manger, joy to the world. In a moment, it's going to be angels we have heard on high. I was going to do a thing this morning where I said I was going to have this read to you by a special guest and have Linus come on and, and read from Charlie Brown's Christmas. How many of you remember Charlie Brown's Christmas as a child? I used to love that. And in the middle of it, you know, Linus comes out and he reads, or recites actually the gospel account of the birth of Christ from uh, the gospel of Luke. And, and it's a holiday favorite around our house. I can still hear him reciting these lines. He did a good job too, by the way. The baby born was Savior, Christ, and Lord. Savior means deliverer. It refers to the deliverance from the guilt and power of sin and from the consequences of sin, death, and eternal punishment. Christ means anointed one. It is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, and it refers to the son of King David who would rule forever. The word Lord is the name of God Himself. This little baby was God come in human flesh. And so, putting these three together, God had come in human flesh to save His people from their sin and rule over them forever. This is the greatest news of all time. The, this is the good news. God has come in human flesh to save His people from their sin and rule over them forever. Now, all babies would be wrapped in swaddling cloths. Swaddling means swathing, and it refers more to the process of wrapping than to a special outfit. You know, today, if somebody's pregnant, you, you know, you have baby showers, and you go down to Walmart or wherever, and you buy, you know, baby blankets and little baby outfits and all kinds of really cute things like that. Well, they didn't go to the Bethlehem Walmart and look for swaddling cloths. They just, these were just strips of linen cloth that had been cut to swaddle the infant. Uh, and so they would wrap the little baby. He'd be all like mummified, you know, and stuff. This is how they did it in those days. And, uh, now, you know, I remember I was thinking about our kids and how uh, they used to wear little mittens. You ever put little mittens on baby? We did that or I did that because I was afraid to cut their little fingernails. You know, those little fingernails, they're really small. They're tiny and you're shaking, you know. When I cut my dog's nails, sometimes I cut too much and they bleed, you know, and you think, okay, we'll just put some alcohol on there. They'll live their dogs. Well, that's what the vet does. Don't act like it's just because he went to school at UC Davis, he knows how to apply alcohol better than me. I mean, you know, I've seen the vet do that, oops, and they just go, they don't even say oops, they just act like it's normal, you know, that, oh yeah, we want to do that sometimes. A little bloodletting never hurt your dog, you know. I mean, that's the difference between me and a vet. I at least know I did something wrong. But uh, anyway, 
You don't want to do that to your baby. You don't want it to be taken off the tips of their fingers, you know, and stuff. That's bad. And so, so you know, we, and, and I, we lived, uh, when the kids were really little, we lived up in the San Bernardino Mountains, and it was cold and wintry, and they had this one snowsuit that somebody had given us, you know, like the ski suits that you have. It was a little baby ski suit, <laughs> and it was just the cutest thing. So anyway, babies wrapped up in swaddling cloth, uh, and that wasn't really the sign. There may have been other births and babies that night wrapped in swaddling cloths, but only one would be lying in a manger. And so verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This may have been just about all of heaven's angels. Angels are powerful. One in the Old Testament by himself killed 185,000 Assyrians overnight. But we see that they sing. Singing and praising God are robust. And with Father's Day coming up, I want to say that they're manly activities. Real men sing, and they praise God. Uh, So take that to heart. The knowledge of God must fill our hearts with singing. And the angels, you know, hey, let's worship the Lord. Glory to God in the highest is a reference point. It means that God is praised in heaven, in the highest. There is no time He is not being praised in heaven. And in heaven there is no doubt about God as to His omnipotence and omnipresence, no doubt as to His character and his conduct, and all of his other attributes. What we should realize, who are still earthbound, is that since he is God in the highest, we can know peace with him despite turmoil around us because of his goodwill toward men. Now, this phrase, uh, goodwill toward men, has been argued in terms of what it means exactly. I would interpret God's goodwill toward men to be similar to what you read in Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. And so because God rules and reigns in heaven, on earth we can know peace with God and have the peace of God knowing that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. The worship service ended. They didn't even take an offering. And then the shepherds, man, these guys were pumped. Verse 15, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let's get to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. The shepherds had not asked for any sign. The angel assumed they would go looking for the baby, and he gave them a sign. They left with haste. To find the Lord. Shepherds don't usually just leave their sheep. These guys may have made some arrangements, left one guy behind. But I'm going to say that I don't think so. I think they just split. They said, man, we're, you're not leaving me behind. I'm going to go see this thing. Now, we talk a lot about priorities and with good reason. There are times, however, when your real priority is to just find or to follow Jesus and it overrules everything else in your life. There will always be things you must leave or abandon for the greater joy of seeing the Lord magnified in your life. At some point, your time or your talent, 
your treasure or your things, these are all going to have to be given over to the Lord. They are the Lord's, and you may need to leave them. Whether or not they knew it, leaving the sacrificial lambs is symbolic. What need would there be for a sacrificial lamb when the Lamb of God was now on the scene? Verse 17, now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them according, uh, concerning excuse me, this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. They just couldn't stop talking about Jesus. They told Joseph and Mary. They told everyone else in the house or inn. They told everyone in Bethlehem. They told any and all the travelers along the road to Jerusalem. I think they woke people up if it was at nighttime. Who's out there? Hey, angels came and told us that the Lord was born. I mean, these guys were excited. People who heard it marveled. Do people marvel when we tell them things about Jesus? They will if we believe he's marvelous. If you believe Jesus is marvelous, when you talk about him, it will cause other people to marvel at the things that you're sharing about him. The final two verses of this account reveal two responses to the birth of Jesus. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Those who know Jesus have a personal response, and they have a public responsibility. The personal response is illustrated by Mary. We're told she kept and pondered these things in her heart. Your heart is to be like a treasure chest in which you accumulate spiritual riches. Like any treasured collection, you care for them and you consider them. Some of you have collections. They, they may not be valuable from this world's point of view. They may not be worth a lot of money. Maybe they're spoons or, you know, teacups or any, anything in the world. I, I like books, and I have some rare books. They're not expensive. They're not really valuable because they're Christian books, and so there's a very limited audience for them. But they're by certain authors, and they're, you know, out of print. Some of them go back to the 1800s, and I'm always, like, searching the Internet, trying to find these volumes. You know, I get all excited because I found J.A. Sice's commentary on Leviticus from 1897. Wow. And if you come into my office, I'll show it to you. A little book, you know, it's all worn, and it's just, but it's beautiful. It's fantastic. You can't get it anywhere. I have it. Or William Burton Pope's three-volume compendium of Christian theology. Ooh, whoa. Man, that was a real find. It took me three and a half years to find that. No one cares. No one wants it. But it's, it's, I treasure it. And so I care for it, and, and I consider it from time to time. And so this is, this, this is what happens with spiritual truth. We're to take it into our heart as a treasure and then turn it over and, and look at it and bring it out. Talk to people. Say, look, I, I first learned this truth. This is why I would encourage you to write in your Bible. Get a good Bible. I don't care how old you are in the Lord. Get a good Bible. You know, Bibles are common now. Everybody's got a half a dozen Bibles, you know, and stuff. Get a good Bible. Spend the money to get a genuine leather or a, a, or a calfskin Bible. Whoa. Oh, man. And uh, 
Have you ever had, you know, those, I mean, you get these Bibles that say, oh, yeah, it's leather. Yeah, it's bonded leather. That means it's going to last three weeks. As soon as you open it, they don't expect you to ever read it. That's why, you know. You need to get a good Bible, you know, one of those good, and, and take care of it. And then if it falls apart, I can turn you on to bookmenders.com, and they'll rebind it for you. And then start taking notes in your Bible. And, and, and you can go through and see some really spiritual treasure in there. Date, on this date, the Lord gave me this verse. I was going through this difficulty, and, and this verse came to me. You know, you're not smart enough to remember those things, and, and it can be a spiritual treasure. And then there's a public responsibility here. It's illustrated by the shepherds. They returned to their everyday living, but they were changed forever. It says they went about their occupation glorifying and praising God. In other words, their encounter with God and with Jesus altered their perception and their perspectives on everything that they did. Everything was different now. They wanted to give glory to God in everything that they did because they knew that He was glorified in heaven and, uh, and is to be glorified on the earth. And so that's our public responsibility. Whether you're serving in the church or whether you're out in the world or going to school, wherever you are, you're to do all things, the Scripture says, heartily or with zeal as unto the Lord. You should be the kind of person where somebody is going to come to you and say, what is with you? And you can say, Jesus is with me, and I just want to be the best employee or the best student. I just want to give this my all because I'm not doing it for you. I'm not doing it for a paycheck. I'm not doing it for the grades. I'm doing it as unto the Lord. I'm doing it as if it means something to Jesus because it does, and their lives were changed. Now, something further to note about their public responsibility it says that they were guided by what was told them. They put a high priority on the words that God had given them. Sure, they had this great experience, uh, an amazing experience of seeing the heavens open, as it were, and this choir of angels, maybe all of the heavenly host singing glory to God. But they were guided by what was told to them. They put a high priority on the Word of God. The Lord born that night was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the trough in which he lay served as a temple for those who had eyes to see ahead to his sacrifice of himself on the cross. We've seen the trough as a throne and as a temple. There's a final metaphor we might suggest. And some of you probably know this already, but let me give you a clue so you can kind of discover it for yourself. We see here in our text that Jesus was wrapped in linen swaddling cloths. It pictures him leaving behind his glory when he came into the world from heaven and taking upon himself the garments, as it were, of humanity. There was another time when Jesus was wrapped in cloths. Do you remember when it was? After his crucifixion, he was taken down from the cross and he was wound in linen strips of cloth for his burial. When he rose from the dead, he left all of that behind returning to heaven, resuming His glory. And so this trough, which was a throne and a temple, also served to picture His tomb. Jesus was born to die and to raise from the dead so that we might live forever. There is an awesome lot going on in that trough the first Christmas day. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you for these things. Pictures in the Word are just worth thousands of words, Lord, and, and we appreciate how this manger, this trough, can focus our heart's attention on the throne of Jesus Christ where He rules and reigns forever, on the temple, as it were, reminding us that He was the full and final sacrifice for the sin of the world. And on the tomb, Lord, which is empty, in which He left behind the clothes and the body of His humiliation and lives forever in a glorious resurrection body that guarantees for us, Lord, that there is eternal life, life with Jesus. And we thank You, Lord, and I pray that You would bring these things powerfully to our hearts this morning. As we continue to pray this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I'm going to ask in these closing few minutes if there's anyone here who is not a Christian. You've never really given your life to Jesus, familiar with the Christmas story. Maybe you believe that there is a God and that Jesus is the Son of God, but you've never really taken a step where you've said, you know, I believe all that and I want it to affect and change my life. I want to give my life to God. If that's the case, we're going to give you an opportunity. And I'm going to ask you in just a few minutes to just raise your hand so that we can acknowledge that, yes, uh, I'm here and I want to give my life to the Lord. Whether you're on the ground floor here or up in the balcony, uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to sing a chorus uh, and, and just uh, worship the Lord giving you an opportunity to think about the things that you've heard this morning and also to think about uh, your relationship with God. If you died tonight, would you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that you'd go to heaven? And if your answer is yes, is it because you've trusted Christ as your Savior or because you're a good person? None of our works of righteousness can avail us or help us. Only Jesus can save us. And so let's sing. Uh, Christians pray that the Holy Spirit would have His way in this place. There might be one or two individuals, maybe more, who need to give their heart to the Lord. And we want this to be their day of salvation. And so let's sing, eyes closed, head bowed, praying, and ask the Lord to work.
Jesus called, he called publicly. He asked them to make a public commitment of their belief in him, of their faith in him. And so I'm going to ask you right now, if you're here, you've never publicly given your life to Jesus Christ, or maybe you have, and it's been a long time ago, and you know that you're backslidden or not living for God, not really having him as the focus and... and uh, center of your life. I just want you to raise your hand so that we can acknowledge that God is doing a work in your heart. So in these last few seconds of our service this morning, is there anyone here who would give their life to Jesus this morning? He's the Lord. Raise your hand so that we can rejoice with you. Heaven will rejoice. Anyone at all as we close. God bless you in the back. Anyone else? You're here this morning that quivering in your heart is the work of the Holy Spirit whom God said that he would send to convince you that Jesus was your Savior. We don't go by experience, but it's what the Word of God tells us. So if you're here this morning and you want to give your life to God, you're not joining a church, uh, you're meeting Jesus as the risen, living Lord and Savior. Anyone else? You're here this morning and you want the Lord. Let's sing that chorus one more time and then I'm going to give you one last opportunity this morning to raise your hand and give your life to the Lord. So let's sing together. Just as you your life to the Lord, raise your hand so that we can pray with you. Anyone in the balcony, anyone anywhere. The Lord loves you, came from heaven to earth to give his life for you. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and your sin in particular. Anyone at all. Now Father, we thank you for the work of your spirit here in this place this morning, for the individual who responded, Lord, and for those who are here that are debating in their heart, Lord. And I pray that you would solve that for them, Lord, that they would see you on the cross and be saved. We pray these things this morning in Jesus' name. And everyone who agreed said amen. Let's stand together. We have one final chorus to sing. If you raised your hand or you wanted to, come on forward afterwards and 
We'll chat with you about what it means to be a Christian uh, and, and just share with you the joy of knowing Christ. Maybe you're here and you have a prayer request, uh, something that we can pray for you about. Come on forward. Some of our guys will be here to do that. May God bless you richly is my prayer. Amen. Just like hell.